And he wondered how in the world he could take a message that was coming out of the burning bush that required him to go and face the powers of Egypt and deliver a whole nation. And he simply said what you and I would probably say, can't do it. The answer came down after a dialogue going back and forth between Moses and God, God graciously giving him Aaron because I believe that God wanted Aaron in there all the time because we never go it alone. There's always somebody who carries us along or supports us or encourages us. But the answer to the great quest began in the song that we just sang. The answer to everything that we are going to share this morning and when you leave this building after this stands in the name I am. I am encompasses everything. I am is the power of the universe. I am is the God who spoke and life happened and everything flowed from those simple words and we are the recipients of it because he dared to send his own son into the world to deal with the, with the, with the problems when life faced us and all we could say is, I can't. We got Jesus, the answer to the great I am. Friends, we are a privileged people and when we take this little journey that we have taken from the desert, backside of a desert, a shepherd, burning bushes, golden calves, today we're going to talk about giants. We need to understand that we will not do this journey on our own. If church this morning is something that you do on Sunday morning because you like the worship or you think this is what you did because it pleases mom or dad, let me tell you, you will walk out of here as empty as you came in. The only power that we are going to find is when we submit to something greater than us and dare to believe that he's capable of doing on our behalf what he asks us to do. There's our power. Let us pray. For Jesus, we come before you we acknowledge our frailty. We acknowledge our humanness. But Father, forgive us if we've hidden behind that as our excuse for not serving, for not worshiping, for not honoring, for not listening to the call that comes from our personal burning bushes. Forgive us. This morning we don't need words, we need you. And Father, if you can take these simple words and you can translate them into power and resource and hope, then I'm asking God that you would do that for us right now because we stand in need of it. In the name of Jesus, our Savior. And everybody said, amen, because it's a great amen. Let me just read the story to you. It's a familiar story. It comes out of Numbers chapter 13. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find it on page 117, just to help. I just want to read parts of this. Starting at verse 17, it's really an interesting story. It's a confusing story, or maybe it's very, well, maybe we'll identify with it. Moses 13, verse 17. When Moses sent them to explore Cain, he's talking about the 12 spies that are going to go out and check out the promised land. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like, whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? Now, how is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees on it or not? Do, you, do, do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up. They explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob toward Lebo and Hamath. And they went up through the Negev and came to Hebron where 
Ahiamun before Zon in Egypt. And when they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. And at the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. And there they reported to them and to the whole assembly, all the nation, and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. Now, listen really carefully to this. We went up into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here's the fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified, very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The, the Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites and Jebusites and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. And then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the man who had gone up with him said, can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And, and they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored, and they said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Interesting story. With toes curled tightly over the edge of the diving board and the refreshing blue water about 12 feet below, I found myself at about the age of nine for the very first time standing on the high diving board from which my buddies had just jumped. So with friends cheering below, which seemed more than a mile away rather than just 12 feet, I was faced with the decision that one step forward would bring great accomplishment, pride, and acceptance, or one step backward would bring great failure, embarrassment, and a long trip back down the ladder to only face ridicule. The Israelites in our passage this morning are standing at the edge of the promised land the land God promised to give them for their own. It was their deal. He'd worked it out with them. They're poised to reap the blessings and the treasures and lay, that lay in the land of Canaan. The 12 tribes returned from exploring the land with a glowing report. The fruit was large and luscious. The land indeed flowed with milk and honey. They saw it all for themselves. And when they returned, they reported that the land was just as God had promised. But oh gosh, they observed, what the, that there, they observed that there were obstacles in the land as well. Hmm. The people were powerful. The cities fortified. And you know what? Believe it or not, there were giants in the land. I mean, how many dreams and opportunities have been destroyed because of that little three-letter word, but? This negative observation led to negative interpretation. We can't attack these people. Which led to exaggeration. All the people are giants. And ultimately it led to paralysis. Well, that's just 
forget the whole thing, and let's go back to Egypt. Now, Canaan in the Old Testament is, a, is kind of a type of the kingdom of God. This land was, was held out to these people as a place of God's rest and peace found only in his presence, a freedom from slavery for these people. And as an add-on, the promise of the kingdom of God, friends, I need us to understand at the very beginning of what we're saying this morning, the kingdom of God is given to every believer. There's a sense, and I want us to feel it, that we're all standing on the edge. But how often do we get right up to the edge of God's promise, staring at the fruit of his rest, knowing what he has said about our freedom, his indescribable peace, only to back away because of the giants living there. I wonder how many come right up to the edge of salvation, get a glimpse of the joys others express, feel the conviction of the Spirit in their hearts, but pull away because the giant of the world out there beckons to them. Felix, the book of Acts, after hearing Paul relay the gospel message and heard his story of salvation and, and have him talk about the possibilities of, through Jesus Christ, he says this, you may leave now, I'll send for you later when I find it convenient to hear about this again. This is such an oft-repeated story, one that has lasted basically unchanged for 2,000 years. Always later, or I'm not sure, or what will people think, so many classic responses, and yet all with the same result. A big defiant no to Jesus, invitation to join up with him. Or, let's bring it home a little closer. I wonder how many of us as believers come up to the edge of walking in total obedience to God. We, we see the blessings of consecrated life. We, we've heard about them. It's been preached and we've been told about them and we've seen it in the saints that live around us. No, we see the blessings, the rewards of servanthood, desiring to be committed to that life, but decide that the process, the price, too costly, and the time too demanding, and unable to face the giants before them, turn around and in so doing, decide Jesus isn't enough. But you see, my friends, it wasn't the giants in the land that made them complain and grumble against God. Yeah, let's use the giants as our excuse. Let's use them as some kind of rationale as to why we can't do what we think maybe we should be doing. No, there's something else. Nor is it the obstacles in our own Christian life keep us from fulfilling a walk with Christ the way that we dream, think we should. No, the giants are living somewhere else. Could I suggest today that the giants are living in our hearts, our minds. The giants of unbelief, the giants of fear, the giants of complacency, this rather strange satisfaction with the way things are, even if they make us miserable, we'd rather stay put. We hate change, things unfamiliar, and outside of our control or understanding. We hate change if it requires us giving up what we presently call pleasurable. And for many, a fear of what others might say. And if we haven't experienced it yet, then we become suspicious of it. Faith, friends, if nothing else, is an adventure to say the best. I want to work with this a bit this morning. 
But nevertheless, those are the giants that really keep us from enjoying God's peace and presence. It's the stuff that's going on inside us. You see, every promised land has its giants, guaranteed. Every blessing has its challenges. When the rich man asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life, I mean, he, he, he was a well-intentioned man. He was accepting the fact that Jesus was speaking like, well, different than the Pharisees around him. He came to him with a, a living hope that maybe this man would give him the answer that would solve his great concern about what happens after death. Jesus answered him. Keep God's commandments and sell all you have and come follow me. It just seems so upside down, doesn't it? So upside down to what we have come to believe is best for us. And for this well-intentioned man, I'm sure as he walked away, shaking his head, he was thinking, give it away. After I have worked so hard to get it. And for this very wealthy man, it proved to be one huge giant the blessing of eternal life was met by the challenge of getting his priorities in order. Here's our first thought. The first giant we're going to face as we move with the hope of entering the promised land, the first giant we're going to face is the giant of unbelief. Now that's a hard one for us because those of us, and, and probably a good percentage of us, have been raised up through Sunday school or, or through some kind of religious program that has taught us all about belief. Belief should be the easiest thing in the world for us. We've memorized the verses, we've heard the sermons, we've talked about it among ourselves. But when you think about it, God simply said to go and explore the land. That, that was the instructions to 12 men, go out and check the place. Not to determine if it was the right place, just go check it out. God already knew the land was good. He already given it to the Israelites. It was already in the plan. In fact, in, in his future view, he saw them all living there comfortably, doing what he was hoping they would do. So the Israelites had no reason not to believe God. And not just because of a, of a word and an invitation in the moment, no. They had experience in this matter of trusting God with the seemingly impossible already. They had already been educated in the school of trust and believing, at least you would think so. God had already delivered them from slavery in Egypt. The Red Sea wasn't just a bedtime story for them. They all lived through it. And, he, and, and he, he went before them as a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. There was this confidence, this assurance that God was with them. The great I am that had been promised to, to Moses was coming true. He wasn't letting them go. He fed them each and every day. And the stories go on and on. No, we too live both by God's word and the scripture. We get the message, go. Do. But we also have our experience with him. If we have walked any time with him, oh, they're not Red Sea stories, not at least for most of us, but there are those times when we, we know that at the end of the day, the things unfolded the way they did because there was God in them. We know it. We have our experiences. So before we jump all over these Israelites, we need to ask an important and rather fundamental question of ourselves, me included. Why does unbelief even enter in? Here's what we think. 
it's those darn giants again. We would have no problem trusting God if it weren't for those challenges and obstacles all around us. You see, the giants are there to test, to, uh, to test our trust and belief as well as bring us to maturity. God, God doesn't bring things in just happenstance. God directs it. That's his promise to us over and over again in the scriptures. I mean, this isn't trying to find a text that might say, mm, I wonder if God's going to be with me in this. This is the constant assurance of his going with us and promising to never leave us or forsake us and, and so on. No, we know it's all there, but he throws in the stuff test our trust and belief. James got it, at least through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Here's what he says in James chapter 1 verse 2. Consider it pure joy. What a strange word, but that's what he is saying. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. You know that. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. It's a double blessing. You get joy, and God assures you that you will lack nothing of eternal value. <clears throat> nothing. See, God's promised land held everything they needed and wanted. Everything. The pathway, though, is simply through the workout room. You throw in some sweat. It needs to be done there. It's what makes us. But God is teaching us that our faith never grows in, in comfortable surroundings. As a matter of fact, if things are too easy, it doesn't even take faith at all. It, it's difficult. It gets done anyway. Our faith grows, and God gets the glory. And we stand back, and we go, whew, where did that come from? How did that happen? And then you stop, and you ponder it a little longer, and you got the answer. You know where it came from. Have you ever noticed when God is going to do something wonderful, it often begins with a difficulty? Think, think of some of the things that have happened in your life that have kind of hurt a bit, disappointed you. And, then, and then, then walk back to that point and then start walking forward. And, and, and you discover that it's in that journey that you begin to discover a relationship with God that runs deeper than before. When God's going to do something really stupendous, he begins with an impossibility. Moses, I want you to go to the Pharaoh of Egypt, and I want you to tell him we want to set the people free. Put yourself in his shoes. You've got one answer. That's impossible. Can't do it. Oh, how God blossoms in those moments. When we can grasp this as a congregation, then he moves beyond all that we can imagine and think. He told us that. But we need to step into the hope and the promise, the faith, that, that, that faith which pleases him, and dare to then step forward into stuff that only he can accomplish. We can go ahead and doubt God's promises in our lives. We can doubt our own successes over our weaknesses, our addictions. We, we can doubt that our church will ever grow and be blessed. We, we can doubt whether our lives can be big enough witnesses to our community or our coworkers or even our family members. But remember, unbelief will always blind us to God's greatness and magnify our own weaknesses. You hear that? Unbelief will always blind us to God's greatness and magnify our own weaknesses. 
After all, that's what the Israelites did. And the result was 40 years of wandering in an empty, dry desert, shaking their heads, wondering what in the world they were thinking. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't feel like wandering for the next 40 years. I happen to believe there's a God that desires more than anything to pull us forward. Here's a second thought. For the second giant we face is the giant of fear. For the Israelites, the fear of giants and fortified cities outweighed the blessings of the fruit they saw. Giants all of a sudden became more intimidating than the excitement of watching somebody carry in a bunch of grapes that required two guys to shoulder it. And so we read in verse 32, they began to see the land of milk and honey as the land that devours those living in it. Quite a switch. You see, the element that contributes the most to fear in our Christian walk is that we measure obstacles and challenges against our own strength and our own resources instead of focusing on God's power and resources. One of the best stories I think we hear out of our history is last year we got a chance to kind of review life through a video and some conversation around it was a group of very faithful people here at Hillcrest who said, yes, we have a million-plus-dollar debt, and yes, our congregation has dwindled down to something that looks impossible if we want to consider paying it off, but they said, we've got ministry to do, and we're going to go forward, and they watched this happen. You see, that's our Red Sea story, friends. It's when we go back there and discover that there's a movement behind you and I here this morning that carries us in to the impossibility. That's what God wants done for us. The Israelites saw themselves as grasshoppers in the eyes of the giants, where instead they should have seen the giants as grasshoppers in the eyes of God. And as David was being pursued by King Saul, running for his life, I'm sure thinking, this could be it. This could be it. In Psalm 27.1, he writes this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. The operative word here is the Lord, the I am, remember him. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And then in verse 4 he says, May I dwell in the house of the Lord, for in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. Here's the good word, friends. For David, he had to run to Mount Zion and climb through the doors of the temple and there reside in the temple of God. We're New Testament Christians, friends. We carry the temple with us. The Holy Spirit that was in the Holy of Holies on Mount Zion now resides in each one of us. When we run, we find our security not in whether I'm strong enough, good enough, big enough, have enough resources. We run into the promises of God knowing that we are living in connection with the temple of God Almighty. The Spirit lives within us. That's who we are. That's who we are. When fear keeps you away from God's leading, remember that He is your refuge and you can do all things through him who gives you. Yeah, that's our hope. That's our hope. Here's our third thought. Because the third giant we face is the giant of comfort and complacency. A few giants show up and all of a sudden everything is just fine where we are. It's not so bad here. Just kind of wandering around. I know we don't have a nation. We've got no homeland, no place to settle. 
The Israelites began to remember and long for the days when they were slaves in Egypt. Can you imagine it? Yes, you can. Because there have been times, friends, when God held promises out to you and to me, great and glorious promises, and we said, no, I like this. When God's asked us to forgive, when God's asked us to give, when God's asked us to do all kinds of things, and we say no, and we step back, and what we step back into is our own misery. And for some strange reason, we can find a kind of complacency and even almost weird, perverted contentment. No, the Israelites began to remember the law and long for the days where they were slaves in Egypt. Listen to what they wanted to go back for. Garlic and leeks. I mean, think about it. They're giving up the promise. The, the, the spies have said, this is it. This is a land flowing with milk and honey. This is great. Here's the grapes. Look at them. They stood before them all and said, no, we'd rather be slaves than eating, Greeks and, uh, eating garlic and leeks. It seems weird, but it's not so weird. Not when we put ourselves into the picture and try to kind of journey along with them, trying to figure out where did they make foolish mistakes and where am I doing the same thing? The important question is not how big is the problem or how big am I, but how big is my that's, that's, the fundament, that's the foundation of all that we're going to do as, as followers of Jesus, is answer that question. How big is my God? The operative word is my here. How big is my God? Is, is it a golden calf size or is it a capital G size God? Paul wrote to a discouraged Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, and he said, For God did not give us a spirit uh, of timidity, but a spirit of love and of power and of self-discipline. My friends, when fear keeps you away from God's leading, remember that he's your refuge and you can work with him. Garlic and leeks. Have you ever noticed that's a challenge? What fear and unbelief don't do, comfort and complacency makes up for it. Suddenly, mediocrity and the status quo seem just fine. The fruit is bigger than life, but there are giants living in the land. The land flows with milk and honey. Nevertheless, it will devour us. Two conjunctions that will kill a zealous Christian are but and nevertheless. I, I would be more surrendered, but. I, I would get more involved in the church. Nevertheless, you must understand that I, I would tithe more. But, or I, I would go where you're leading me, God. Nevertheless, you do understand how busy I am. Now, my friends, if there is no risk, there will be no growth. That's the secret of our faith. That's part of the secret of our faith. The aim of comfort and complacency is to avoid taking the risks. And it's not only one of Satan's biggest strategies, it's hugely successful. Now, I'm not talking about being reckless. I'm not talking about being irresponsible. Get that. When God leads us, we'll know where he's leading us. But as we seek the Lord and feel the Spirit's leading, we can risk. Because God always blesses what he has called us to do. If we will but stop long enough to listen. Oh, underline the word listen. 
See, this learning to listen is the skill that we as a church are inviting you to participate in through our Hearing God seminars. Another one coming up this fall, by the way, just, just saying. But without the listening, then we just wander. Without the listening, it's just another day to get the to-do list checked off on. Without listening, we fail to realize the meaning and the purpose and the fulfillment that God is drawing us into. We're just walking. We're not following. Complacency avoids that at all costs and holds us back in our comfort zones. Most times God works out of comfort zones and challenges us to go beyond them. He loves that. Joshua and Caleb risked being singled out and outnumbered by the other ten spies. They were willing to do that. They stood up and said, no, we can do it. Here's how they said it. We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Now, their certainly can do it stood behind the assurance that God was behind that certainly we can do it. But they knew it. And of the entire group, these two were the only ones that God allowed to enter into the promised land. Oh, what disobedience leads us into. I don't understand it all. I don't know where that all goes. I'm not wanting to say this morning that if you have disobeyed, you have no hope for the promised land. I'm not saying that because we live with a very gracious God who forgives over and over again. Please, don't let me rob that of you. But I am wondering what it is we have missed in entering into the promises of God's plans and purposes for us. Because we said no. I never did jump that day as a nine-year-old. The 12-foot giant that lay in front of me scared me away. And it would be years before I would try it again. Do you know why? Because fear became the definition of all my unknowns then. When I couldn't, it made me nervous. I said no. I learned the word well. I walked with it. Ask me to do something a little hard? No, I don't think so. And I would turn around, face my own embarrassment, break my own pride, and climb back down the ladder because it just felt safer. And I think of all the things I didn't attempt in the meantime and of all the accomplishments, even though just a young guy didn't come to Jesus until I was 17, but in that walk in between, I I think of the things that I missed out on because of doubt, and because of fear. Ten of the twelve spies that went out to explore the promised land forgot God's promises. They forgot his works, his faithfulness, his provision. All they could see were the giants, and they took their eyes off of the solution, which is the great I am. Folks, I really feel, and I'm not saying that because I'm part of the pastoral team here. I, I think I'm picking up on the feelings that, that you and I have shared or, or, or I've heard you talk about in different contexts. But I, I really believe that our church is standing on the edge of God's leading. How can we not? Numbers of us are coming and learning how to hear God. Numbers of us are stepping into set-free settings in which we're saying it's more our pride is not as important as learning how to confess our sins one to another. How, how can we not be standing on the leading when we have decided to come together on monthly prayer meetings where in excess of 50, 60, and plus people come together to pray for God? How can we not in this moment believe that we are stepping through our red seas, that we're experiencing God's manna and quail, that we're watching the way he's leading us? How can we not believe that we're standing on the edge of something? but it'll take the collective will 
of each of us to say, there is not a giant that we are called to face that God will not destroy before us. There are going to be personal giants and they are going to be corporate giants. But they're there. For the Israelites, 40 days of testing, tasting, and exploring resulted in 40 years of aimless wandering because the giants were too formidable. Here's the good word. A new generation. Those 40 years passed because time does. A new generation rises up, a generation who hadn't seen the miracles their parents experienced. There was no Red Sea parting for them. There was no manna or quail from heaven, no victory against opposing enemies that only God could have accomplished, no water from a rock, no miraculous healings. No, this generation saw none of that. They simply knew the cost of disobedience. They simply knew the cost of disobedience. The meaninglessness of wandering in a wilderness with no destination or purpose unless they made a 180-degree turnaround. And out of lessons learned and a driving desire that they would not be so foolish, they stepped up to the plate. They, they faced, I'm sure, the same fears, the same tempting doubts, the same fight against the status quo. No, you can be sure that the great, the great deceiver would have put all their, his energy into keeping those people from God's best just as he did their parents. No, they're facing the same stuff. The enemy doesn't change his tactics. But there was a significant difference. The two spies that Joshua set out scouted the land and would have seen the same things that the original 12 spies had seen. But instead of seeing giants through their own eyes, they saw the giants through God's eyes. The result, rather than cowering in fear, they saw their enemies cowering in fear. Here's their words, Joshua 2.24. And they said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our eyes. All the people are melting in fear because of us. We need spiritual eyes to see that the enemy's, the, the, the enemy's blustering words and, and all the, the stuff that he's barging through are simply tactics to cover up his own fear. He knows he's lost. We can't act like he's lost, though. Or we can't, I'm sorry, we can't act like he's won. We have got to see through the eyes of God that the world out there is trembling at the feet of Jesus. We are the people with power. We are the ones commissioned to go into the world and to do what only can be done because the Spirit dwells within us. We carry the temple of God with us and he's calling us out there to make the only kind of difference that he can make because he's the great I am. All things rest in him. All things The result, rather than cowering fear, they saw their enemies. And instead of a defiant no, they faced the promised land. They stood before their first obstacle, a rushing impassable river Jordan, and under God's instruction, instructions not sure of the outcome, the priests stepped into their fear, fought the enemy of unbelief, and put their feet into this life-threatening river and watched what God could only do, and they walked across the dry land into the most amazing of gifts, the promised land. They got there. The journey, though, had truly begun. Here's my conclusion. I have reasons to believe that I'm looking at a reasonably intelligent group of people. 
After all, you are my brothers and sisters, right? We're together in this. And over these three weeks, we have stood together before a burning bush. A call from God to be used as he sees fit. We've stood together before a golden calf with all the temptations to construct a God of our own design to, to keep us safe and in control. And we stood before the giants formed within our own hearts, giants of unbelief and doubt, fear and complacency. And now we get to make a choice. Joshua looked out over this young nation as he prepared to die. His life was coming to an end. Much had been accomplished. Territories have been conquered. But he knew that whether at the beginning of the journey or at the end of the journey, they would always face the challenge of forgetting who their real God was. And so he gave them this most profound, challenging calling. Joshua 24, verses 14 to 15. He said this to them. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. First line. Throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates rivers and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. It's a moment of choice. As he faced his nation, his heart longing to see his people come together and become the great nation that God had promised back to Abraham and, and through his lineage. And he stood there and he said, here's the options, friends. Yeah, we have failed in the past, but we get to change. You can stand up today and decide which of the ones you're going to follow. The gods of your own design. The gods that keep you safe. Or... Oh, I love this line. But as for me in my household, we will serve the Lord. As for me in my household, we will serve the Lord. Friends, it doesn't get any better than that. That's our call this morning. We've taken this very quick Reader's Digest journey from desert to, to the promised land. And we've kind of walked with a group of people that are so symbolic, metaphorical in many ways of our own lives. But we come to the end of the story. We come to the point where God just simply puts his hands on his hips and says, so what are you thinking? Where am I in the story? Where are you going to put me? And he waits. Because now, friends, it is up to you. The journey up to this was in the hands of God. He does and he delivers and he's so good and gracious. But now, it's up to us. The choice can go no farther, no pressure, no, no, no manipulation, no, no heavy persuasion. You've seen it all. You know the story. Now what are you going to do with it? Friends, we're going to sing our final song here. And, and I know that coming forward doesn't change your life forever. These, these people were up and down constantly and God's grace got them through this and through that and he forgave them over and over again. But I'm just wondering as a congregation, as sort of an act of solidarity, we stand up in this moment and we say, as for me in my household, I'm going to serve God. 